Okay, this is a class about complementarianism. I wish I had a better word, uh, or a shorter word, um, for the concept of complementarianism, but to date one has not happened. Uh, and um, it is a much needed topic to consider, especially in light of our ongoing, rapidly changing culture, which is less and less friendly those of us who self-identify as complementarians. <clears throat> so let me uh, leave some prayer before we start. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we are so thankful for your word and pray that um, in our hearts we all have it settled that your word is what is authoritative in our life and that we would, be, uh, we would uh, change our thoughts to conform to your word, uh, that our minds would be renewed and that we would not be fashioned after any other, uh, either our own personal or family tradition, or um, cultural tradition or educational traditions, but Lord, that we would follow the traditions you've established in your word. And that uh, we would uh, be motivated by <coughs> our uh, knowledge of your word and our love to obey you more than we love the approval of man. And so, um, as we talk about this today, Lord, I pray that you help me, uh, give me uh, clarity of communication, and give all those that are here um, willing hearts and minds uh, to receive your word. And we ask that you be glorified in it, uh, not only today, but especially uh, in the lives of these folks as they move, live and move forward in their lives. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus, our majestic Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen. Hi. So, uh, we're again, we're talking about complementarianism. Um, there's a handout coming. Should have gotten here earlier and didn't run off, but uh, my wife is doing that. So, uh, we're talking about complementarianism. Complementarianism is the belief that God, uh, that um, God has made men and women alike in very many ways. He has also made them very different in some ways. And God has also assigned them different roles or functions, especially in marriage, but also in the church. I'll read this uh, quote from Luke Duncan and Susan Hunt's uh, Women's Ministry in a Local Church. The handout is on its way, so. Complementarians believe that the Bible teaches that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but believe different and complementary in function. Uh, but different and complementary in function, with male leadership in the home and believing community. The church being understood as a part of God's design. That means that both men and women are image bearers of the living God. We are fully human and all of that entails. We are equal before the cross, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. But God has made us different. He has given certain functions and roles to men and certain functions and <clears throat> ministry, uh, certain functions and roles to women that are distinct. Let me read that again. He has given certain functions and roles to men and certain functions and roles to women that are distinct. So that is what is that issue here. And um, <clears throat> we see this in nature. There's much that we could talk about from that. Um, let me just get, get historically. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were talking about this the other night. One of my granddaughters was asking me about head coverings. And I thought I, um, um, we'll delve into it a little bit. But. Um, I can remember a time growing up in the 50s that women always wore hats to church. That was just the um, tradition. I don't think they were necessarily doing it because 1 Corinthians 11 uh, had anything to do with it. I think it was the tradition. Uh, perhaps a Roman Catholic women uh, who can, uh, yes, um, 
Mrs. Bastic, Martha, thank you. Uh, in, in the 50s, did, did women, you were the Catholic Church, right? Did women wear uh, hats or head coverings at all? Um, I was overseas mostly when I was young, so it was a little different probably, but I think they didn't wear hats or like a doily yes. thing or something like that. Right. That's what I recall as well. And, um, but tradition changed, and when tradition changed, the cultural tradition changed, suddenly, um, if you didn't have a biblical conviction, that uh, such a thing, you know, I'm not uh, saying necessarily so, we'll wait till we get there. Uh, if you didn't have a biblical conviction that was true, then uh, you would, you of course, jettison it quickly because you would want to be uh, different than people around you. Uh, even in the, um, and, and we see, uh, we've seen the onset of feminism, uh, we've seen more and more um, changes take place. Uh, in the 90s, the issues that confronted the church and pastors were uh, evangelical egalitarianism. Uh, and when I say egalitarianism, I'm talking about the belief that not only men and women are uh, certainly have a, a difference, um, but that uh, with, with terms of function and role, uh, that they were equal and either could occupy either office. And so that's what I mean by egalitarian. And so <clears throat> we were, much was being made of that. You had the discussion of, of uh, women pastors and elders. And of course, those who were theologically liberal had jettisoned that uh, uh, by the 60s. By the 60s, we began to see churches like the United Methodist Church, uh, which I would briefly apart, um, uh, and uh, wasn't necessarily in the 60s, but it was the 70s we saw it hit our part of the country, and then in the, and then in theologically liberal churches, even Presbyterian churches uh, in the, in the north, uh, PC USA, not um, not not PC uh, not the not not the PCA. So PCA is what we see mostly around here, but there's also PC USA, and they are very theologically uh, distinct in many ways. And I remember the first woman pastor in our little town, uh, Fredericktown, Ohio, was at the Presbyterian Church. And uh, she was a nice lady, I met her, she came to the drugstore, um, a fine person, uh, but it was a, a bit of a change for our community. So you can see the, the impact of, of uh, the change in culture uh, as, has really impacted the church. Those issues uh, <clears throat> were not, they're not essentially new to churches in America. My mother's family comes from a very Pentecostal uh, background and they've had women preachers since uh, the early part of the 20th century. And even uh, one of their denominations, which we have here at Apex, uh, Four Square Church. And the Four Square Church here is called um, I just drew a blank. What's that? Hope Chapel. Hope Chapel. That's right. It's um, they were they were started. Uh, they were four square church. They were started by a woman whose name was Amy Civil McPherson. And a fascinating story to tell. If I start telling that one, I'll be here all day. But um, <clears throat> I briefly was a part of uh, four square church when we were, we were first converted, and they had many women uh, women preachers. It was just a part of their culture, but they were very distinct from all the other evangelical churches and even liberal churches in those days. Uh, so they were, uh, they came at it from a different, uh, different direction. However, um, uh, in the 60s and 70s, again, the theological liberal church under the pressure of feminism um, began to ordain women pastors and deacons. Today's culture, churches are almost viewed as oppressive if they uh, hold to concept uh, of complementarianism. Um, anything but egalitarianism is somehow oppressive. But folks, um, as I prayed in my meeting prayer, uh, in the end, our position on these issues doesn't come from the culture or even history or tradition. It must come from the Bible. And um, what, what, what is the testimony of scripture concerning the relationship between men and women, husbands and wives, both in the marriage and in church. 
So we'll be covering these by looking very quickly at a number of passages in the Bible. And that will be our approach to this. The themes we'll be covering will be the sameness of sexes, the differences of the sexes, the created order established by God, the fall and its effects, God's order in marriage and in the home, God's order in his church. So let's look first at Genesis chapter 1. And in your outline, I'd be top of, of page 2, although my notes in your outline will look different, so I didn't say that. Um, <clears throat> Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Therefore, we see in Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image. Um, and by man, he means, I suppose he, mean, he meant Adam, but he also meant Eve. So we see the man there, you're really speaking of, of mankind. Uh, that's not always true. And if we look particularly at this topic, you have to decide um, by context, really, if it is man or mankind. We know it's mankind because Eve was created in the image of God as well. And, um, and what does that mean? Well, it means that we are living because the Spirit of God is in us. And I say the Spirit of God, God breathed into Adam, and he became a living soul. He took, made him from the, from, the, from, the, from the dirt, from the dust of the earth, and breathed into him. So every human being, in that sense, uh, is, in, is, is here because of God, God having, uh, giving them life. And so what's pictured in, in Genesis 1 is, and 2 is, um, um, is true in every person, even though... Um, uh, we came about by natural creation uh, and not by special uh, creation. We have hearts in quotation, not just a heart that pumps your blood, but we, we have personality. We have our mind, our will, and emotions. We have thoughts. We are different than, than the animals and um, uh, in, in a number of ways. We are moral people. Every human being has these moral notions, and, um, and we're concerned with that. We're concerned with existential issues, like why are we here? The animals don't ask, well, why are they here? Because uh, we don't know what all the animals think, but we have no indication that they ponder such abstractions. But it's only because we're creating the image of God that we think that way, and that we uh, have those thoughts. We possessed virtues in the garden, or a kind of holiness and righteousness before the fall. Adam and Eve were created perfect, without sin. Um, the Adam would have been the highest, Adam and Eve, the highest of uh, 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 anything that's ever been created, and maybe the, the most intellectually intelligent people in the history of the earth. Everything since the fall has gone downhill. Men's foolish hearts are darkened. They become futile in their speculations. All that we see in scripture shows that, that the downward trend from Adam, even to this day, and it, you can see it in terms of lifespan, um, but, uh, and we don't know a lot about what Adam knew and didn't know, but it would be a mistake to think that he was primitive and you're smart. Yeah, that's not true. He was the best we had. Okay. When he represented us in the garden, that's why God imputed sin to us. He was our representative head there, and he was the best we had. And it's only uh, in modern times that people have thought that modern people are. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, uh, we live in a, in a time when uh, 
a kind of generational snobbery. The younger you are, the more intelligent you are. Um, I hope you don't think that. I would just uh, prove my point. It's been downhill since. Um, <coughs> Adam was given dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Actually, they both were given dominion. But Adam was primarily the one who was given dominion. And um, our original home was a place devoid of all sin, that is, the Garden of Eden. We have bodies that manifest our inner glory just as the universe manifests God's glory. We are the only creatures that are made in the image of God. And um, that sets us apart for a special relationship with them. God created them male and female in his image. So again, here is the sameness or equality in dignity and greatness in being the image bearers of God. There's a sameness, and yet there is a difference as well. But with respect to that, to dignity and, and greatness, men and women share that. There's no inferiority um, uh, implied in that, taught at all in Scripture. There are different roles, but there's not on the basis of inferiority. Um, God gave them a commission together be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it so there we see the first part now let's look at chapter 2 Genesis verses 25, 15 to 25 uh, I need a good reader to read that can I have some one volunteer yes Jim thank you the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yeah, keep going, please. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so we see that God created Adam first. And we will note that, um, that uh, that's a big deal. We'll see that in the New Testament. Because it establishes authority and role. God made Adam a helper fit for him, someone to assist him in his mission. Uh, God made Adam Eve from Adam's rib. There's an order established there as well. <coughs> By the way, just a little hint when you read the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, it doesn't always work because the New Testament doesn't go back and talk about every scripture in the Old Testament. But you do always want to read the Old Testament in light of what the New Testament says about that. The New Testament, the inspired apostolic writers, were giving God-given inspiration to interpret the Old Testament uh, as it was truly intended to be or if intended to be for us. So we take our interpretation. That's why we're going to look at this and then we're going to flash forward into the New Testament to see how the New, New Testament says what well, because of that fact do this don't do that because of that fact do this and don't do that that's part of our our just hermeneutical hermeneutical approach to reading scripture 
the New Testament helps us and really determines much about how we interpret the Old Testament. Um, God made Eve to complement Adam in every way, physically, mentally, and emotionally. And Adam seemed pretty excited when he saw her, I must say that, you read that in the Bible. Marriage is, marriage is established here in this text as well. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay, I'm gonna, uh, for purposes of time, I'm not going to read all of Genesis 3. But Genesis 3 uh, is the fall. And, um, and so what we have in Genesis 3 is the description of the fall, which is massive uh, in its uh, importance. But we also see the specific curses that accompanied uh, the fall that went to Adam and Eve and the serpent. So the serpent, um, uh, we, we hear, uh, you know, you'll crawl on the belly because you've done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go. Don't ask me what the serpent looked like and how he walked around before. I have no idea. But we know that after this, he crawled on his, his belly um, all the days of his life. I'll put now, and then we have the first indication of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first place the gospel is preached in rather vague terms. But it's showing the bruising of the head of uh, uh, the heel of Jesus, but that the head of, of, of Satan is bruised. And that's a greater, uh, uh, a greater accomplishment. It, al it alludes to Christ on the cross, defeating sin. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Uh, so so he's there, see, so he'd say, what, what did childbirth? I don't know, I didn't, she didn't have any children before that, so we have nothing to compare that to. Um, <coughs> Uh, you shall, uh, yeah. So the first is the pain in childbirth. The second is, you your desire shall be to rule, uh, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And so there, we see um, uh, a disruption, if you will, in the harmony of marriage that had been established. The two became one. Plus, suddenly, we have the potential seems to indicate that Eve and Eve's descendants will, um, will desire at times uh, to rule over their husband. And, but uh, your desire will be contrary, I should say, contrary, that there will be actual conflict in marriage uh, and perhaps the usurpation of authority, but he says he shall rule over you. And um, so, uh, again, we have the it speaks of the authority of the man over the woman. He shall rule over you. He also also alludes to the authority of, um, I'm sorry, uh, he also talks to, about Adam. He curses the ground, making work much more difficult, and physical death uh, <clears throat> to Adam was going to take place and all his descendants. And um, chapter 3 closes on some note of hope, though obscure in many ways. God clothing Adam and Eve with animal skins. So animal blood was shed. Uh, and it's easy perhaps to see uh, that Adam and Eve were saved. The shedding of blood meant the remission of sins. And it was a type that all the types looked forward to the antitype, which was Christ setting, shedding his blood. Now let's move to the New Testament where we see the apostolic uh, teaching based on what we've read in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, and I'll read that for you. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand 
But the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So we see uh, this based on on creation order, uh, the implications uh, of that. The head or authority of every man is Christ. He is our head, our primary authority. And the word authority here, there's a couple different options. Some places would say it could also mean origin, but that's not how it's used here. And when Christ in Ephesians 1 is said to be far above all rule and authority, it means that he has the right to say uh, what's going to take place. He has the authority that you are obligated by this order, or in the case of Christ, because of who he is, and the order that God has placed and given to, to Christ, that he is, uh, he is our head, and we are obligated right, to submit to him. That submission goes to every one of us, men and women. <coughs> and, um, and also, the head of every wife is her husband. Now, head, not every man is her head, only her husband. And of Christ, and of course, Christ is authoritative over her as well. Uh, but there's another authority that the man doesn't have that is uh, her husband. <clears throat> so we see the, the, as a result of the created order, there is a created authority pattern as well. It's not just the order of coming into existence or that she came from his rib, but that, but that the apostle here is saying that there is authority that goes with that that's inherent in every husband-wife relationship. Um, now let's go to verses 7 to 10. Here it gets a little trickier. Uh, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, here we have this discussion, which is really uh, what set up the first thing about authority had to do with how women dressed and how men dressed in their public meetings. The, um, um, he talks about the glory, the glory of God as man, uh, that is, man is the expression of his nature and he glorifies God. The glory of God, uh, the glory of the man is his wife. She glorifies him. So he says it's appropriate to have a symbol of authority worn by a woman. Now some actually wear a head covering. Some believe that that practice was limited to that culture and not applicable in American culture. And around the world today there may be cultures where men and women express their masculinity and femininity by dressing in a certain way. Some believe that long hair is sufficient. Let me say this, I, the key there in, um, well, let me say two or three things just uh, offhand here. Um, uh, um, the idea of a woman wearing a head covering during meetings, but uh, when she prays or prophesies uh, is a like I say, it's a long tradition. I already talked about women wearing head coverings, hats, or whatever in church, really up until the 60s, 70s, when that was jettisoned uh, pretty quick. And uh, But some traditions still do it. And if a woman feels so convicted uh, before God that she should wear a head covering, uh, certainly that's allowable in this church. Um, the elders will not set, teach that you ought to do that, and you're in sin if you don't. But you're certainly not in sin if you do it as well. And so in that sense, I encourage you, the elders have not taken a position of uh, being pro-physical head covering. Um, but, that, that's, but I would say this, the, the guiding principle in this discussion is that men ought to look like men, and women ought to look like women. You get that? Mm-hmm. This is not hard. I guess they did not do that in the Christian church. Uh, right. The shorn uh, or the, if the, well, 
the, <clears throat> we don't know for sure, but he certainly implies that um, her uh, not having a head covering was uh, disrespectful to her husband, showed that he, she had no authority, whereas that was a sign of authority. And you, know, you can say it's long hair, uh, there's different ways to approach that, that. Women should have long hair, men should have short hair. If men have long hair and women have look like men, that would certainly be um, uh, seemingly biblical object objectable. And um, so I think I think I do think the issue of uh, of how people dress with respect to their masculinity and femininity. And I have no other personal rules about what that is. I'm just saying it's kind of like you know it when you see it. It varies from time to time in culture. And um, yeah, you know, Dan, you want to clean up anything I said there? You got your mouth full, don't you? I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a good way to say that. I think the, uh, the notion that we are uh, we're not certainly not mandating head coverings. That's no surprise in our history of our church. Um, but at the same time, we're not going to forbid anyone who feels like they should do that. Great. So um, there is a unique glory in the created order that we should not just accept begrudgingly, but rather we should know and declare that it is the best. Not that you have to do these things, it's that you get to. It's the best way. It's the good way. It's not some thing to be embarrassed about, it is the good way. It is the way that honors God. If you're married, it honors your husband. And so um, um, I think that should be important to us. Um, the way it, it is the way we love God and glorify Him. Men are to act like men, he says later in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. They're not with the indication they're not to act like women. Women are act like women and not like men. Um, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it says it's an abomination for a man to dress like a woman. That's just really clear there. You can say, well, that's Old Testament. I would say, yes, it was. The <coughs> um, question is, is the Old Testament authoritative to you as well? Uh, that would be a deeper question I would come back to you with. But we can't discuss that now. Let's go on to verse, verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, a woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so, now, so man is now born of a woman. All things are from God. So there's this mutual dependence of men to women and women. And Original woman came from man. Ever since then, every man born has been born of a woman. And all things are from God. He is the creator of all. Men and women are the second cause. God is the first cause. And he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. There's a sameness in that. We are both to be given glory to God. Now let's move on to the implications. So let me just reiterate. Oh, I'll say more about when we get to first Timothy. Uh, in Ephesians 5, we're going to talk about the implications of divine order in marriage. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, 
because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. So here we see the outworkings of the divine order between husband and wife. Wives are to submit to their husbands, not based on the perfection of their husbands, but they're to submit to their husbands as they would to the Lord. And um, that's a matter, that's a hard issue there. And uh, it will help you to keep that in mind that you do this for sake of conscience before God. <coughs> um, and the husband, because the, uh, they're to submit to their own husbands, um, because the husband is the head of the wife. Again, as to the Lord, I've already talked about that. So husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And, you know, he says, and Christ gave himself up for her. Now, if the first one, um, the injunction and command to women to submit to their husbands and to respect their husbands, I think gets to the root of a common temptation among all wives. And that is to resist, or tempted to resist submission. Nobody wants to be told what to do. And we do that to God, and we shouldn't. And wives should have a disposition of wanting to obey their husbands. Now, the second command of husbands loving their wives gets to, I believe, the temptation of men. Men are tempted to be selfish. They're tempted to want their way. Not because it's the best thing for their wife, because it's the best thing for them, or they think it's the best thing for them. They are tempted um, uh, not to love her as they ought. The husbands are to love their wives in the same way they love their own bodies. And no one ever hated his own flesh. Since you are one flesh, when you love your wife, then you're loving yourself, he's saying. And so, um, this, this is what uh, we should, men, and you young men aren't married yet, you need to approach uh, your role in marriage as caring for your wife. You conduct yourself in such a way that you do what's best for her, even at your own expense. It's going to be best for your family, ultimately it will be best for you. But you act not out of selfishness, your own greedy desires, but you act out of what is best uh, for your wife. You lay your life down for your wife, because that's what Christ did for the church. Young ladies, when you're looking for a husband someday, see if you can ascertain that's the kind of guy he is. Because uh, I don't care what else he's got going for him, if he doesn't love you as Christ loved the church, it's going to be difficult for you. So I want you to encourage you to be to have these kinds of these kinds of um, notions about what marriage is looking and who you should be marrying. That should be really uh, in, uh, in informing your choices. It should be a part of your little checklist if you have a checklist. I don't advocate a checklist. I just Everybody has one where they've, where they've spoken it out and written it down or, or not. So, <clears throat> Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 19, husband, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Now I'm quoting Colossians 3. I believe here, again, another temptation of men is to be harsh with their wives. Don't be harsh with your wife treated with respect as a co-heir she's 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 yours to be gentle with not to be harsh with and um, so uh, again another temptation control kind of ungodly control uh, born out of selfishness or ego instead of 
God ordained responsibility to care. It's two different things altogether. Uh, and um, and you are to your, your communication and treatment of them should be characterized with that with love and gentleness. <coughs> and finally, we see the ultimate purpose in marriage is to share the relationship of Christ to, to the church. That's what's on display. And you're, those of you who are married and those of you who will be married, your marriage is to display the gospel. It's to display that aspect, that aspect that Christ, as a husband, is treating his wife that way. It points in some way to, to the cross as, as a wife lovingly and cheerfully and uh, in faith submits herself to her husband, that declares what the church is like with respect to Christ himself. And that is the great secret of why marriages exist at all. It exists for that reason. Now there are other reasons, procreation, be fruitful, multiply, all that, but it first of all exists for the glory of God. Companionship is a part of that, that's all of it, but remember, your marriage is to glorify God. Now let me give you a couple of cautions. <coughs> um, wives are not obligated to submit to their husbands if in so doing you would sin against God. You're not obligated to submit if it's sinful. Remember what Peter told the authorities um, when they threatened to arrest him for preaching the gospel. He said, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. <clears throat> men ought always to obey God rather than man. So even though that he was speaking to an authority over him, he was saying, oh, but there's an authority over, over me as well that's even higher, and that's Christ. <coughs> uh, so, um, just that's a, that's a caveat and a caution. Um, and the effects of the fall, realistically, the terrible effects that can go there are abusive husbands, um, rebellious wives. And let me just talk a little bit here about domestic abuse and spousal abuse. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, I mean physical assault. Um, even verbal assault can be sinful. Um, um, a man who runs his house by threats and intimidation, um, who, uh, you know, and I, I don't care for terms like this because they're undefined, but emotional abuse, you can treat a person without ever touching them. You can treat them in such a way that you hurt them. That's what I'm getting at there. You can hurt somebody by the words you say, by the way you treat them, um, uh, it could, you're in your supposed leadership if you devolve into coercive control uh, you're not trying to appeal to your wife uh, you're not trying to uh, explain uh, but you, um, you, get, you coerce her to actually doing what she doesn't want to do um, sometimes uh, a, an abusive man will isolate his 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 wife from other people so that, that nothing interferes with his control over her. I've seen that. It, it's a real thing. Um, and there's other forms of abuse, of sexual abuse and things like that. Let me just say this. Uh, if you're a woman here, a married woman, or if you know one, and listen, complementarianism does not mean you get a stamp of approval to abuse your wife. Wife, if you're abused, Call, if it's physical, call the police. Call a pastor. Call one of your pastors here. They will take your situation very seriously. It will not be swept under the rug. Well, that's just a part of who we are as complementarian. That's not what we are as complementarian. It's the, it's the opposite. Men are to love their wives and to lay down their life for them. They're not to hurt them. And um, it's such a... Um, uh, it's, I would say it's common, it's common in the culture because of fundamental disrespect of women, but uh, also just selfish men. 
as you are motivated by all, all manner of things. But I just want you to know that if you um, <clears throat> feel like you're being abused or you then, then talk to a pastor. They'll hear you very carefully. And um, the church, uh, we have helped women who have been abused. Um, I helped a woman move out of her house while her husband was at work with us. I had a woman call me, this is many years ago, um, in this church, call me and she was being abused. And, um, and I said, you call the police? And so I got to the house and the police got to the house at the same time. There's two different authorities in that man's life. He is, he is, he is under the authority of the civil authorities. And he's in this church, he's under the authority of the pastors. And so I, we arrived at the same time. I was able to care for her and he was not very treatable at the time. He was, um, so, the, but, so the man took care of him. And the man had the cuffs and the whole thing. And uh, it's what needed to take place. It was, uh, it was sad. Fortunately, those are very few and far between in my 30-some years here. 31, 30 years, I guess. Um, but I say it because it's prevalent. And I, and I say it also because words like complementarianism or patriarchy, which patriarchy always, I thought was a good word. It's been male leadership in the home. Now it's become, got these connotations of you know, abusive, oppressive husbands. <coughs> um, so I do want to make those kind of disclaimers and say what the Bible has to say uh, about um, uh, <coughs> the authority of the church and civil authorities as well. Let's move on to 1 Peter chapter 3. <coughs> Likewise, Likewise, wise wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if, even if some of them, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, uh, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with, uh, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter here says that wives should be subject to their own husbands even when they are not obedient to the word. It means that they may be a, a disobedient Christian or they may not be a Christian at all. Now your, now the injunction from 1 Corinthians 7 is if, uh, women, if you're going to be married, marry only in the Lord. That means marry a real Christian. Okay? That is to all the young ladies here. Uh, but maybe you're already married and you didn't read that. and For whatever reason, uh, you happen to, you might be married to an unbeliever, so that's uh, obedient to the word. And, and the injunction here is that they should be subject to them even if they're not a, obedient to the word doesn't mean they should sin. They may, may be, they're still obligated to submit to him, even though he may not be a Christian, or he may not be um, a very, um, uh, uh, well, he may not be a Christian, I'll leave it at that. And, um, <clears throat> and their adornment should be a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, uh, the thing about braiding of hair, I know all the young ladies here are concerned about that, because you like to braid your hair. And I, I, Listen, what he's talking about, it. don't let it be that only. You know, don't let that be what carries the freight, you know, with your, with your husband. What it means is let the inner person be what you, is adorned. Don't let it adorn the outward at the expense of adorning the inner person. 
but if you're adorning the inner person, then you can adorn the outer person uh, and you get, you get the best of both worlds, right? So that's Phil's uh, interpretation of that. And, um, I'm sticking to it. Okay. <laughs> husbands should live with their wives in an understanding way. One of the things all the husbands here know is you do not think like your wife thinks. Let me say it again. You do not think like your wife thinks. You know, and you have to be married about an hour and a half to figure that out. So <laughs> uh, the, the pressure here is on the men to live with your wives in an understanding way. I mean, work at it. Uh, hard. Draw her out. Try to figure out how she thinks. Um, you know, what's, what's motivating her? That's what it means to live with your wife. Understand her, her strengths and her weaknesses as well. And um, show honor to her uh, as, uh, as a co-heir of uh, the grace of life. And, uh, and also, a little kicker in here, the husbands are warned if they fail to do that, your prayers will be hindered. It's either delayed or not answered. So you don't want your prayers bouncing off the ceiling and coming back. You'd rather them go all the way to the Lord, right? So don't let your prayers, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, you're going to suffer for that personally. And your wife will suffer as well. All right, and see, uh, finally we'll be in First Timothy. Well, not exactly finally. Uh, we need to move along here. This is... Um, this has to do with the function in the church of uh, what these what these uh, creation ordinances mean for uh, uh, the church. And I'm going to drop down to verse 11. Um, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And you see the implications of the creation order and the ordinance there. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. So verse 11 and 12 uh, seems to refer to church meeting. Roles are in focus here, particularly teaching uh, in the teaching times of the church. And it says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, Paul gives a prohibition against women teaching men and exercising authority over a man. Now that's a big deal uh, with respect to, um, uh, I'll, I'll get to it a little bit, but the offices uh, within the church. So I'll just note that. Um, verse 14, he gives an example of what happened when the roles are reversed, um, and uh, she took the lead, and bad things happen. Verse 15, uh, about women being saved through childbirth, probably refers back to Eve and the promise of salvation that would come from her seed. And uh, that's the you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And um, um, uh, which is. Um, yeah, so this should be saved through childbirth is a reference again back to Eve, I believe, there. Then he gives conditions for that salvation to be realized if they continue in faith, <coughs> uh, love, holiness, and with self-control. Now there's no prohibition against on women teaching women, but on the contrary, Titus 2, he commands older women to teach younger women. So that so the uh, uh, the roles in the churches there indicate that men are to teach uh, um, men or women and women. Uh, women may teach women, but they may not teach men or hold a, an authoritative position over them. Uh, we'll get to that. Now let's go to, to 1 Timothy 3. Uh, and, uh, this, gives, this gives the uh, qualifications for an elder. Uh, overseer and elder of the same office. <clears throat> uh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer uh, must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, he goes on to give something. So, 
So again, the church recognizes two distinct church offices, elder and deacon. And we see the qualifications here, and they're much the same in the list given in Titus 1 as well. Elders are male. Elders must be the husbands of one wife. And um, so you can't be a polygamist and be an elder. If you got two wives, it doesn't work. Okay? Now, if you had a wife and she passed away, you wouldn't lose your job because of that. But he's talking about fundamentally a kind of a one-woman man, not a multi-woman man, uh, should be an elder. Um, and uh, again, we see that men are to be elders, which follows on the heels of the command that women are not to teach or be an authority over a man in church. In verses 8 to 13, he speaks of deacons. We go through that, but so similarly, deacons must be the husband of one wife, and they're male. The word for deacon, which means servant, by the way, is used in more general sense in different places in the New Testament where both men and women are serving, but they do not occupy the office of a deacon. Uh, the word is, um, uh, can mean just in general one serving. Okay, um, I've talked about, oh, uh, but a woman may, uh, verses in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, every man who prays or prophesies with his head, head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since, it's all, it's, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, uh, without getting into all, of, all that, what it means a couple of things, noted a couple of things. Women prophesied in their meetings. The injunction is that she prays or prophesies with her head uh, uh, uncovered. He says that's bad. He wants it covered, or whatever uh, you believe that to mean. But the point is this. Women prayed and prophesied in the public meetings. And we see that here. And I, and I think it, I wouldn't just limit it to that. It can be... Uh, they read the scripture on Sunday morning. Uh, they give some announcement that's relative to them. It's not an authoritative position. Uh, so there's not, not some kind of universal ban on women, women speaking at all. That would be contrary to scripture. Uh, but there are limits to that, and that's why we've, I've sought to go through and do that. I'm running out of time. Um, I think that I'll stop there. Um, I included at the end the affirmations of the Danvers statement. That's a meeting that took place in 1988 in Danvers, Massachusetts, I think, or Connecticut, Massachusetts. And uh, so it, a bunch of theologians uh, and pastors under the Council of Biblical Men and Womanhood made these affirmations, which um, I think are very good and deal with the key points if you want to reference I won't go through them So with that, I will stop. I have been going for 60 minutes, pretty much non-stop. If you have a question, can we take a few more minutes for questions? If you feel the need to go, please do. You're released. Um, are there questions, comments? So, Phil, that was a lot. Thank you. Do you have, like, you know, for us to kind of condense all this into like you know 30 seconds like a mantra or something that we could use to, to kind of help us remember what complementarianism is i'm not sure i could do that i mean the danver statement had 10 points okay. um and they're pretty concise okay. so if you memorize those 10 and you being a bright boy you'd be able to do that so <laughs> <laughs> if i try to do it i think uh, you make it as simple as you can but no simpler Okay. That's what Einstein said. If you try to make it too simple, you start losing key points. So. Yes. Do, do you think that the term patriarchy has is not used when, when talking about these issues because of the baggage that comes with it? Uh, it seems to me patriarchy is like a more biblical word. Uh, but what do you think? Well, I, 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 I would agree with you, and I used to use it more commonly, but it has uh, it has fallen on hard times. And so in an effort to make um, 
Uh, I, I, think, I do think complementarian picks up, I mean, I think the patriarchy certainly picks up the male headship. I don't think it picks up as much um, the complementing, that different but fit together. So I do think I prefer complementarianism for that reason uh, over patriarchy, which only describes one part of it. And, um, and then there's a the baggage issue as well. But between me and you and me, I'm not bothered by that. I, I know who they are, and you know who they are, and the people that won under that name, and some of them didn't end well, and that didn't help any at all. So that's another discussion Fred and I know about. Um, any other questions? Well, thank you for your um, attention. I hope this has been helpful. And we pray. Father, thank you for your word. And just as we read it, we see the wisdom in it. And if we don't see the wisdom in it, Lord, I pray you change our hearts and we would embrace your word and help us to, to wrestle with the things that are hard for us to understand, uh, knowing that um, you are there. You sent the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth. And we look, for, we look to that.